Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro. And what a show we have for you tonight. Come in. Come in and cool down. Settle in for a treat. It's August. It is the depths of summer. The worst of the worst season of every year. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Which, tonight, we will not be. To help us forget heat and humidity for the next few hours and for the next few weeks... We will have a story to cool off by. We will be in polar season, so scoop your treats, pour your drinks, snuggle with a chum, and let's be off to the mountains of madness. Okay, let's face the fact up front. H.P. Lovecraft is not for everyone. His language is so rich one could call it plummy. His characters are, oh, dare I say, flat. And, unless they are the product of a decadent family that has lived in the sub-sub-basement of the ancestral manse for a few dozen generations, they are rather without backstory or fetchins. Unless they're a professor of ancient lore at Miskatonic University. At least they are without history or temperament that departs from that of the author or arises from one of the author's pet peeves or, oh dear, dare I say, his prejudices. 
This characteristic is probably why, when we read Lovecraft, we frequently feel that our old Uncle H.P. himself is telling us a tale of an experience he has personally survived or from which he has just shaken off situational madness. That said, I love Lovecraft. He is one of the great old ones. I, alas, had to dig into him on my own, that is to say, my grandfather, the font from which all my early reading was sourced, was not fond of him. Poe, yes. Verne, c'est un M.R. James, Algernon Blackwood, but of course. And the occasional William Hope Hodgson, absolutely. But Lovecraft? No. One of the first things I read by him was The Color Out of Space, recommended by a friend. I wondered, of course, at age ten, why color was spelled with that strange O-U-R business, uh, but that, as I was to discover, was just part of Lovecraft's way, the personal way in which he addressed the world, the personal way in which he presented himself to that world. The Color Out of Space has remained with me ever since. I have read it innumerable times. I have read it aloud to friends, to people I barely knew, and therein hangs many a tale. What has also remained with me as a result is that notion that, as someone has said, the universe is not only stranger than we know, but stranger than we can know. I read The Color Out of Space in show number 19. That was in May of 2012. You can hear that by going to the Tales to Terrify archives on our homepage. But tonight, tonight we head south to find more specific evidence of the Elder Gods, the Great Old Ones, at all. Lovecraft wrote At the Mountains of Madness during February and March 1931, its antecedents are many. Jules Verne's 1893 novel, An Antarctic Mystery, or The Sphinx of the Ice Fields, that's one. That book, in turn, owes its existence to Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, by the way, and that was published in full in 1838. Pym itself owes much to other works. One of the negatives leveled at it by the critics of the time was that it was too derivative, another being that it was too gruesome. In the end, Poe called it a very silly book. Of course, later it heavily influenced Verne, and no lesser a light than Herman Melville. Back to Lovecraft, though. It has been suggested that At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs was an influence on madness. Also, A. Merritt's The People of the Pit. But, apart from all of that, apart from any literary fetchings, Lovecraft was a great fan of polar exploration. He was fascinated with the Antarctic continent since he was at least 12. That would have been in about 1902 when he wrote several short treatises on early Antarctic explorers. Uh, that is from Lovecraft's biographer, S.T. Joshi, by the way. But beginning at about age nine, inspired by W. Clark Russell's 1887 book, The Frozen Pirate, 
Lovecraft wrote several yarns that he set in Antarctica. Anyway, what kid raised in that era when both the North and South Poles were largely terra incognita? What kid did not dream of adventures that went beyond Amundsen and Perry et al.? In 1930, Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd concluded his first exploration of the South Pole. He had built his camp at Little America, Antarctica, during which his Ford trimotor aircraft flew over the bottom of the world for the first time. And this was the year before Lovecraft wrote tonight's tale. At the Mountains of Madness was first rejected by Farnsworth Wright at Weird Tales, that was because of its length, 41,270-some-odd words. Finally, it was accepted and serialized in 1936 in the February, March, and April issues of Astounding Stories. Since then, of course, it's appeared in many collections everywhere. Now, because when we finish Part 1 tonight, I am going to scoot you out of here... I want you to know at the beginning that all 41,000-plus words of At the Mountains of Madness will be read for us by Mr. Bob Neufeld. Bob read for us last week and in several weeks past. He is one of the premier readers, to my way of thinking, on LibriVox, and you can hear more from him over there and on Crime City Central in that part of the District of Wonders. Anyway... We will have two more weeks to talk about the story and about Lovecraft and about the Antarctic. But for now, I want you to take a potty break, then come back, pour a warm drink, settle down, keep your treats close, wrap up, snuggle with a chum, and open your ears to At the Mountains of Madness. Chapter 1 I am forced into speech, because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic, with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice-caps, and I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, is inevitable. Yet, if I suppressed what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. The hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, will count in my favor, for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great lengths to which clever fakery can be carried. The ink-drawings, of course, will be jeered at as obvious impostures, notwithstanding a strangeness of technique which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. In the end, I must rely on the judgment and standing of the few scientific leaders who have, on the one hand, sufficient independence of thought to weigh my data on its own hideously convincing merits, or in the light of certain primordial and highly baffling myth-cycles, 
and on the other hand sufficient influence to deter the exploring world in general from any rash and over-ambitious program in the region of those mountains of madness. It is an unfortunate fact that relatively obscure men like myself and my associates, connected only with a small university, have little chance of making an impression where matters of a wildly bizarre or highly controversial nature are concerned. It is further against us that we are not, in the strictest sense, specialists in the fields which came primarily to be concerned. As a geologist, my object in leading the Miskatonic University expedition was wholly that of securing deep-level specimens of rock and soil from various parts of the Antarctic continent, aided by the remarkable drill devised by Professor Frank H. Pabodi of our engineering department. I had no wish to be a pioneer in any other field than this, but I did hope that the use of this new mechanical appliance at different points along previously explored paths would bring to light materials of a sort hitherto unreached by the ordinary methods of collection. Pabodi's drilling apparatus, as the public already knows from our reports, was unique and radical in its lightness, portability, and capacity to combine the ordinary artesian drill principle with the principle of the small circular rock drill in such a way as to cope quickly with strata of varying hardness. Steel head, jointed rods, gasoline motor, collapsible wooden derrick, dynamiting paraphernalia, cording, rubbish removal auger, and sectional piping for bores five inches wide and up to one thousand feet deep, all formed, with needed accessories, no greater load than three seven-dog sledges could carry. This was made possible by the clever aluminum alloy of which most of the metal objects were fashioned. Four large Dornier aeroplanes, designed especially for the tremendous altitude flying necessary on the Antarctic plateau, and with added fuel-warming and quick-starting devices worked out by Pabodi, could transport our entire expedition from a base at the edge of the great ice barrier to various suitable inland points, and from these points a sufficient quota of dogs would serve us. We plan to cover as great an area as one Antarctic season, or longer, if absolutely necessary, would permit, operating mostly in the mountain ranges and on the plateau south of Ross Sea. Regions explored in varying degree by Shackleton, Amundsen, Scott, and Bird. With frequent changes of camp, made by aeroplane, and involving distances great enough to be of geological significance, we expected to unearth a quite unprecedented amount of material, especially in the Precambrian strata, of which so narrow a range of Antarctic specimens had previously been secured. We wished also to obtain as great as possible a variety of the upper fossiliferous rocks, since the primal life-history of this bleak realm of ice and death is of the highest importance to our knowledge of the earth's past. That the Antarctic continent was once temperate and even tropical, with a teeming vegetable and animal life of which the lichens, marine fauna, arachnida, and penguins of the northern edge are the only survivals, is a matter of common information and we hoped to expand that information in variety, accuracy, and detail. When a simple boring revealed fossiliferous signs, we would enlarge the aperture by blasting, in order to get specimens of suitable size and condition. Our borings, of varying depth, according to the promise held out by the upper soil or rock, 
were to be confined to exposed or nearly exposed land surfaces, these inevitably being slopes and ridges because of the mile or two-mile thickness of solid ice overlying the lower levels. We could not afford to waste drilling the depth of any considerable amount of mere glaciation, though Pabody had worked out a plan for sinking copper electrodes in thick clusters of borings and melting off limited areas of ice with current from a gasoline-driven dynamo. It is this plan, which we could not put into effect except experimentally on an expedition such as ours, that the coming Starkweather Moor expedition proposes to follow, despite the warnings I have issued since our return from the Antarctic. The public knows of the Miskatonic expedition through our frequent wireless reports to the Arkham Advertiser and the Associated Press, and through the later articles of Pabodi and myself. We consisted of four men from the university, Pabodi, Lake of the Biology Department, Atwood of the Physics Department, also a meteorologist, and myself, representing geology and having nominal command, besides sixteen assistants, seven graduate students from Miskatonic, and nine skilled mechanics. Of these sixteen, twelve were qualified aeroplane pilots, all but two of whom were competent wireless operators. Eight of them understood navigation with compass and sextant, as did Pabodi, Atwood, and I. In addition, of course, our two ships, wooden ex-whalers, reinforced for ice conditions and having auxiliary steam, were fully manned. The Nathaniel Derby Pickman Foundation, aided by a few special contributions, financed the expedition. Hence our preparations were extremely thorough, despite the absence of great publicity. The dogs, sledges, machines, cap materials, and unassembled parts of our five planes were delivered in Boston, and there our ships were loaded. We were marvelously well equipped for our specific purposes, and in all matters pertaining to supplies, regimen, transportation, and camp construction, we profited by the excellent example of our many recent and exceptionally brilliant predecessors. It was the unusual number and fame of these predecessors which made our own expedition, ample though it was, so little noticed by the world at large. As the newspapers told, we sailed from Boston Harbor on September 2, 1930, taking a leisurely course down the coast and through the Panama Canal, and stopping at Samoa and Hobart, Tasmania, at which latter place we took on final supplies. None of our exploring party had ever been in the polar regions before, hence we all relied greatly on our ship captains, J. B. Douglas, commanding the brig Arkham, and serving as commander of the sea party, and Georg Thorfinson, commanding the bark Miskatonic, both veteran whalers in Antarctic waters. As we left the inhabitant world behind, the sun sank lower and lower in the north, and stayed longer and longer above the horizon each day. At about sixty-two degrees south latitude we sighted our first icebergs, table-like objects with vertical sides, and just before reaching the Antarctic Circle, which we crossed on October 20th with appropriately quaint ceremonies, we were considerably troubled with field ice. The falling temperature bothered me considerably after our long voyage through the tropics, but I tried to brace up for the worst rigors to come. On many occasions the curious atmospheric effects enchanted me vastly, these including a strikingly vivid mirage, the first I had ever seen, 
in which distant burgs became the battlements of unimaginable cosmic castles. Pushing through the ice, which was fortunately neither extensive nor thickly packed, we regained open water at south latitude 67 degrees, east longitude 175 degrees. On the morning of October 26th, a strong land blink appeared on the south and before noon we all felt a thrill of excitement at beholding a vast, lofty, and snow-clad mountain chain which opened out and covered the whole vista ahead. At last we had encountered an outpost of the great unknown continent and its cryptic world of frozen death. These peaks were obviously the Admiralty Range discovered by Ross and it would now be our task to round Cape Adair and sail down the east coast of Victoria Land to our contemplated base on the shore of McMurdo Sound, at the foot of the volcano Erebus, in south latitude, seventy-seven degrees, nine minutes. The last lap of the voyage was vivid and fancy-stirring. Great barren peaks of mystery loomed up constantly against the west as the low northern sun of noon or the still lower horizon grazing southern sun of midnight poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow, bluish ice and water lanes, and black bits of exposed granite slope. Through the desolate summits swept ranging intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping, with notes extending over a wide range, and which, for some subconscious mnemonic reason, seemed to me disquieting, and even dimly terrible. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Rerich, and of the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled Plateau of Leng, which occur in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. I was rather sorry later on that I had ever looked into that monstrous book at the college library. On the 7th of November, sight of the westward range having been temporarily lost, we passed Franklin Island, and the next day descried the cones of Mounts Erebus and Terror on Rouse Island ahead, with the long line of the Perry Mountains beyond. There now stretch off to the east the low white line of the great ice barrier, rising perpendicularly to a height of two hundred feet like the rocky cliffs of Quebec, and marking the end of southward navigation. In the afternoon we entered McMurdo Sound, and stood off the coast in the lee of smoking Mount Erebus. The Scoriac Peak towered up some twelve thousand seven hundred feet against the eastern sky, like a Japanese print of the sacred Fujiyama, while beyond it rose the white, ghost-like height of Mount Terror, ten thousand nine hundred feet in altitude, and now extinct as a volcano. Puffs of smoke from Erebus came intermittently, and one of the graduate students, a brilliant young fellow named Danforth, pointed out what looked like lava on the snowy slope, remarking that this mountain, discovered in 1840, had undoubtedly been the source of Poe's image, when he wrote seven years later, The lavas that restlessly roll their sulfurous currents down Yannick in the ultimate climes of the pole, that groan as they roll down Mount Yannick in the realms of the boreal pole. Danforth was a great reader of bizarre material, and had talked a good deal of Poe. I was interested myself because of the Antarctic scene of Poe's only long story, 
the disturbing and enigmatical Arthur Gordon Pym. On the barren shore, and on the lofty ice-barrier in the background, myriads of grotesque penguins squawked and flapped their fins, while many fat seals were visible on the water, swimming, or sprawling across large cakes of slowly drifting ice. Using small boats, we effected a difficult landing on Ross Island shortly after midnight on the morning of the ninth, carrying a line of cable from each of the ships and preparing to unload supplies by means of a breeches-boy arrangement. Our sensations on first treading Antarctic soil were poignant and complex, even though at this particular point the Scott and Shackleton expeditions had preceded us. Our camp on the frozen shore below the volcano's slope was only a provisional one, headquarters being kept aboard the Arkham. We landed all our drilling apparatus, dogs, sledges, tents, provisions, gasoline tanks, experimental ice-melting outfits, cameras, both ordinary and aerial, aeroplane parts, and other accessories, including three small portable wireless outfits, besides those in the plains, capable of communicating with the Arkham's large outfit from any part of the Antarctic continent that we would be likely to visit. The ship's outfit, communicating with the outside world, was to convey press reports to the Arkham Advertiser's powerful wireless station at Kingsport Head, Massachusetts. We hoped to complete our work during a single Antarctic summer, but if this proved impossible, we would winter on the Arkham sending the Miskatonic north before the freezing of the ice for another summer supplies. I need not report what the newspapers have already published about our early work, of our ascent of Mount Erebus, our successful mineral borings at several points on Ross Island, and the singular speed with which Pabodi's apparatus accomplished them, even through solid rock layers. Our provisional test of the small ice-melting equipment, our perilous ascent of the Great Barrier with sledges and supplies, and our final assembling of five huge aeroplanes at the camp atop the barrier. The health of our land party, twenty men and fifty-five Alaskan sledge-dogs, was remarkable, though, of course, we had so far encountered no really destructive temperatures or windstorms. For the most part, the thermometer varied between zero and twenty or twenty-five degrees above, and our experience with New England winters had accustomed us to rigors of this sort. The barrier camp was semi-permanent, and destined to be a storage cache for gasoline, provisions, dynamite, and other supplies. Only four of our planes were needed to carry the actual exploring material— the fifth being left with a pilot and two men from the ships at the storage cache to form a means of reaching us from the Arkham, in case all our exploring planes were lost. Later, when not using all of the other planes for moving apparatus, we would employ one or two in a shuttle transportation service between the cache and another permanent base on the Great Plateau from six hundred to seven hundred miles southward, beyond Beardmore Glacier. Despite the almost unanimous accounts of appalling winds and tempests that poured down from the plateau, we determined to dispense with intermediate bases, taking our chances in the interest of economy and probable efficiency. Wireless reports have spoken of the breathtaking four-hour non-stop flight of our squadron on November 21st over the lofty shelf ice, with vast peaks rising on the west, and the unfathomed silences echoing to the sound of our engines. Wind troubled us only moderately, 
and our radio compasses helped us through the one opaque fog we encountered. When the vast rise loomed ahead, between latitudes eighty-three degrees and eighty-four degrees, we knew we had reached Beardmore Glacier, the largest valley glacier in the world, and that the frozen sea was now giving place to a frowning and mountainous coastline. At last we were truly entering the white, eon-dead world of the ultimate south. Even as we realized it, we saw the peak of Mount Nansen in the eastern distance, towering up to its height of almost fifteen thousand feet. The successful establishment of the southern base above the glacier in latitude eighty-six degrees seven minutes, east longitude one hundred seventy-four degrees twenty-three minutes, and the phenomenally rapid and effective borings and blastings made at various points reached by our sledge trips and short aeroplane flights are matters of history, as is the arduous and triumphant ascent of Mount Nansen by Pabodi and two of the graduate students, Gedney and Carroll, on December 13th to 15th. We were some 8,500 feet above sea level, and when experimental drillings revealed solid ground only 12 feet down through the snow and ice at certain points, we made considerable use of the small melting apparatus, and sunk bores, and performed dynamiting at many places where no previous explorer had ever thought of securing mineral specimens. The pre-Cambrian granites and beacon sandstones thus obtained confirmed our belief that this plateau was homogeneous with the great bulk of the continent to the west, but somewhat different from the parts lying eastward below South America, which we then thought to form a separate and smaller continent divided from the larger one by a frozen junction of Ross and Waddell seas, though Byrd has since disproved the hypothesis. In certain of the sandstones, dynamited and chiselled after boring revealed their nature, we found some highly interesting fossil markings and fragments, notably ferns, seaweeds, trilobites, crinoids, and such mollusks as linguelli and gastropods all of which seemed of real significance in connection with the region's primordial history. There was also a queer triangular striated marking, about a foot in greatest diameter, which Lake pieced together from three fragments of slate brought up from a deep-blasted aperture. These fragments came from a point to the westward, near the Queen Alexandra range, and Lake, as a biologist, seemed to find their curious marking unusually puzzling and provocative, though to my geological eye it looked not unlike some of the ripple effects reasonably common in the sedimentary rocks. Since slate is no more than a metamorphic formation into which a sedimentary stratum is pressed, and since the pressure itself produces odd distorting effects on any markings which may exist, I saw no reason for extreme wonder over the striated depression. On January 6th, 1931, Lake, Pabodi, Danforth, the other six students, and myself, flew directly over the South Pole in two of the Great Plains, being forced down once by a sudden high wind, which, fortunately, did not develop into a typical storm. This was, as the papers have stated, one of several observation flights, during others of which we tried to discern new topographical features in areas unreached by previous explorers. Our early flights were disappointing in this latter respect, though they afforded us some magnificent examples of the richly fantastic and deceptive mirages of the polar regions, 
of which our sea voyage had given us some brief foretastes. Distant mountains floated in the sky as enchanted cities, and often the whole white world would dissolve into a gold, silver, and scarlet land of Dunzanian dreams and adventurous expectancy under the magic of the low midnight sun. On cloudy days we had considerable trouble in flying, owing to the tendency of snowy earth and sky to merge into one mystical opalescent void with no visible horizon to mark the junction of the two. At length we resolved to carry out our original plan of flying five hundred miles eastward with all four exploring planes, and establishing a fresh sub-base at a point which would probably be on the smaller continental division, as we mistaken conceived it. Geological specimens obtained there would be desirable for purposes of comparison. Our health, so far, had remained excellent, lime-juice well offsetting the steady diet of tinned and salted food and temperatures generally above zero enabling us to do without our thickest furs. It was now midsummer, and with haste and care we might be able to conclude work by March, and avoid a tedious wintering through the long Antarctic night. Several savage windstorms had burst upon us from the west, but we had escaped damage through the skill of Atwood in devising rudimentary aeroplane shelters and windbreaks of heavy snow-blocks, and reinforcing the principal camp buildings with snow. Our good luck and efficiency had indeed been almost uncanny. The outside world knew, of course, of our program, and was told also of Lake's strange and dogged insistence on a westward, or rather northwestward, prospecting trip before our radical shift to the new base. It seems that he had pondered a great deal, and with alarmingly radical daring, over that triangular striated marking in the slate. Reading into it certain contradictions in nature and geological period which whetted his curiosity to the utmost, and made him avid to sink more borings and blastings in the west-stretching formation to which the exhumed fragments evidently belonged. He was strangely convinced that the marking was the print of some bulky, unknown, and radically unclassifiable organism of considerably advanced evolution, notwithstanding that the rock which bore it was of so vastly ancient a date, Cambrian, if not actually pre-Cambrian, as to preclude the probable existence not only of all highly evolved life, but of any life at all above the unicellular or at least the trilobite stage. These fragments, with their odd marking, must have been five hundred million to a thousand million years old. CHAPTER Two. Popular imagination, I judge, responded actively to our wireless bulletins of Lake's start northwestward into regions never trodden by human foot, or penetrated by human imagination though we did not mention his wild hopes of revolutionizing the entire sciences of biology and geology. His preliminary sledging and boring journey of January 11th to 18th with Pabodi and five others, marred by the loss of two dogs in an upset when crossing one of the great pressure ridges in the ice, had brought up more and more of the Archean slate, and even I was interested by the singular profusion of evident fossil markings in that unbelievably ancient stratum. These markings, however, were of very primitive life-forms, involving no great paradox, 
except that any life-forms should occur in rock as definitely Precambrian as this seemed to be. Hence I still fail to see the good sense of Lake's demand for an interlude in our time-saving program, an interlude requiring the use of all four planes, many men, and the whole of the expedition's mechanical apparatus. I did not, in the end, veto the plan, though I decided not to accompany the northwestward party, despite Lake's plea for my geological advice. While they were gone, I would remain at the base with Pabodi and five men and work out final plans for the eastward shift. In preparation for this transfer, one of the planes had begun to move up a good gasoline supply along McMurdo Sound. But this could wait temporarily. I kept with me one sledge and nine dogs, since it is unwise to be at any time without possible transportation in an utterly tenantless world of eon-long death. Lake's sub-expedition into the unknown, as everyone will recall, sent out its own reports from the short-wave transmitters on the plains, these being simultaneously picked up by our apparatus at the southern base and by the Arkham at McMurdo Sound, whence they were relayed to the outside world on wavelengths up to fifty meters. The start was made January 22nd at 4 a.m., and the first wireless message we received came only two hours later, when Lake spoke of descending and starting a small-scale ice-melting and bore at a point some three hundred miles away from us. Six hours after that, a second and very excited message told of the frantic beaver-like work whereby a shallow shaft had been sunk and blasted, culminating in the discovery of slate fragments with several markings approximately like the one which had caused the original puzzlement. Three hours later, a brief bulletin announced the resumption of the flight in the teeth of a raw and piercing gale, and when I dispatched a message of protest against further hazards, Lake replied curtly that his new specimens made any hazard worth taking. I saw that his excitement had reached the point of mutiny, and that I could do nothing to check this headlong risk of the whole expedition's success. But it was appalling to think of his plunging deeper and deeper into that treacherous and sinister white immensity of tempests and unfathomed mysteries which stretched off for some fifteen hundred miles to the half-known, half-suspected coastline of Queen Mary and Knoxland. Then, in about an hour and a half more, came that doubly excited message from Lake's moving plane, which almost reversed my sentiments, and made me wish I had accompanied the party. Ten o' five p.m., on the wing, after snowstorm, have spied mountain range ahead higher than any hitherto seen, may equal Himalayas, allowing for height of plateau. Probable latitude, seventy-six degrees, fifteen minutes, longitude 113 degrees 10 minutes east. Reach as far as I can see, to right and left, suspicion of two smoking cones, all peaks black and bare of snow. Gale blowing off them impedes navigation. After that, Pabodi, the man, and I hung breathlessly over the receiver. Thought of this titanic mountain rampart seven hundred miles away inflamed our deeper sense of adventure and we rejoiced that our expedition, if not ourselves personally, had been its discoverers. In half an hour, Lake called us again. Molten's plane forced down on plateau and foothills, but nobody hurt, and perhaps can repair. 
shall transfer essentials to other three for return or further moves if necessary, but no more heavy plane travel needed just now. Mountains surpass anything in imagination. Am going up scouting in Carol's plain with all weight out. You can't imagine anything like this. Highest peaks must go over thirty-five thousand feet. Everest out of the running. Atwood to work out height with theodolite while Carol and I go up. Probably wrong about cones, for formations look stratified. Possibly pre-Cambrian slate with other strata mixed in. Queer skyline effect. Regular sections of cubes climbing to highest peaks. Whole thing marvelous in red-gold light of low sun. Like land of mystery in a dream or gateway to forbidden world of untrodden wonder. Wish you were here to study. Though it was technically sleeping time, not one of us listeners thought for a moment of retiring. It must have been a good deal the same at McMurdo Sound, where the supply cache and the Arkham were also getting the messages, for Captain Douglas gave out a call congratulating everybody on the important find, and Sherman, the cache operator, seconded his sentiments. We were sorry, of course, about the damaged aeroplane, but hoped it could be easily mended. Then, at eleven p.m., came another call from Lake. Up with Carol over highest foothills. Don't dare try really tall peaks in present weather, but shall later. Frightful work climbing and hard going at this altitude, but worth it. Great range fairly solid, hence can't get any glimpses beyond. Main summits exceed Himalayas, and very queer. Range looks like pre-Cambrian slate, with plain signs of many other upheaved strata. Was wrong about volcanism. Goes farther in either direction than we can see. Swept clear of snow above about twenty-one thousand feet. Odd formations on slopes of highest mountains. Great low square blocks with exactly vertical sides and rectangular lines of low vertical ramparts like the old Asian castles clinging to steep mountains in Rurik's paintings. Impressive from distance. Flew close to some, and Carol thought they were formed of smaller separate pieces. But that is probably weathering. Most edges crumbled and rounded off, as if exposed to storms and climate changes for millions of years. Parts, especially upper parts, seemed to be of lighter-colored rock than any visible strata on slopes proper, hence of evidently crystalline origin. Close flying shows many cave-mouths, some unusually regular in outline, square or semicircular. You must come and investigate. Think I saw ramparts squarely on top of one peak. Height seems about thirty thousand to thirty-five thousand feet. I'm up twenty-one thousand five hundred myself in devilish gnawing cold. Wind whistles and pipes through passes and in and out of caves, but no flying danger so far. From then on, for another half hour, Lake kept up a running fire of comment and expressed his intention of climbing some of the peaks on foot. I replied that I would join him as soon as he could send a plane and that Pabodi and I would work out the best gasoline plan, just where and how to concentrate our supply in view of the expedition's altered character. Obviously, 
Lake's boring operations, as well as his aeroplane activities, would require a great deal for the new base which he planned to establish at the foot of the mountains, and it was possible that the eastward flight might not be made after all this season. In connection with this business I called Captain Douglas, and asked him to get as much as possible out of the ships and up the barrier with the single dog-team we had left there, a direct route across the unknown region between Lake and the McMurdo Sound, was what we really ought to establish. Lake called me later to say that he had decided to let the camp stay where Moulton's plane had been forced down, and where repairs had already progressed somewhat. The ice-sheet was very thin, with dark ground here and there visible, and he would sink some borings and blasts at that very point before making any sledge-trips or climbing expeditions. He spoke of the ineffable majesty of the whole scene, and the queer state of his sensations at being in the lee of vast silent pinnacles, whose ranks shot up like a wall reaching the sky at the world's rim. Atwood's theodolite observations had placed the height of the five tallest peaks at from thirty thousand to thirty-four thousand feet. The windstrap nature of the terrain clearly disturbed Lake, for it argued the occasional existence of prodigious gales, violent beyond anything we had so far encountered. His camp lay a little more than five miles from where the higher foothills rose abruptly. I could almost trace a note of subconscious alarm in his words flashed across a glacial void of seven hundred miles, as he urged that we all hasten with the matter and get the strange new region disposed of as soon as possible. He was about to rest now, after a continuous day's work of almost unparalleled speed, strenuousness, and results. In the morning I had a three-cornered wireless talk with Lake and Captain Douglas at their widely separated bases. It was agreed that one of Lake's planes would come to my base for Pabodi, the five men, and myself, as well as for all the fuel it could carry. The rest of the fuel question, depending on our decision about an easterly trip, could wait for a few days, since Lake had enough for immediate camp heat and borings. Eventually the old southern base ought to be restocked, but if we postponed the easterly trip, we would not use it till the next summer, and meanwhile Lake must send a plane to explore a direct route between his new mountains and McMurdo Sound. Pabodi and I prepared to close our base for a short or long period, as the case might be. If we wintered in this Antarctic, we would probably fly straight from Lake's base to the Arkham, without returning to this spot. Some of our conical tents had already been reinforced by blocks of hard snow, and now we decided to complete the job of making a permanent village. Owing to a very liberal tent supply, Blake had with him all that his base would need, even after our arrival. I wirelessed that Pabodi and I would be ready for the northwestward move after one day's work and one night's rest. Our labors, however, were not very steady after 4 p.m., for about that time Lake began sending in the most extraordinary and excited messages. His working day had started unpropitiously, since an aeroplane survey of the newly exposed rock surfaces showed an entire absence of those Archean and primordial strata for which he was looking, and which formed so great a part of the colossal peaks that loomed up at a tantalizing distance from the camp. Most of the rocks glimpsed were apparently Jurassic and Comanchian sandstones, and Permian and Triassic schists, 
with now and then a glossy black outcropping suggesting a hard and slaty coal. This rather discouraged Lake, whose plans all hinged on unearthing specimens more than five hundred million years older. It was clear to him that, in order to recover the Archean slate vein in which he had found the odd markings, he would have to make a long sledge-trip from these foothills to the steep slopes of the gigantic mountains themselves. He had resolved, nevertheless, to do some local boring as part of the expedition's general program. Hence he set up the drill, and put five men to work with it, while the rest finished settling the camp and repairing the damaged aeroplane. The softest visible rock, a sandstone about a quarter of a mile from the camp, had been chosen for the first sampling, and the drill made excellent progress without much supplementary blasting. It was about three hours afterward, following the first really heavy blast of the operation, that the shouting of the drill crew was heard, and that young Gedney, the acting foreman, rushed into the camp with the startling news. They had struck a cave. Early in the boring the sandstone had given place to a vein of Comanchian limestone, full of minute fossil cephalopods, corals, echini, and sporifera and with occasional suggestions of silicious sponges and marine vertebrate bones, the latter probably of teleosts, sharks, and ganoids. This in itself was important enough, as affording the first vertebrate fossils the expedition had yet secured. But when shortly afterward the drill had dropped through the stratum into apparent vacancy, a wholly new and doubly intense wave of excitement spread among the excavators. A good-sized blast had laid open the subterrene secret, and now, through a jagged aperture, perhaps five feet across and three feet thick, there yawned before the avid searchers a section of shallow limestone, hollowing worn more than fifty million years ago by the trickling groundwaters of a bygone tropic world. The hollowed layer was not more than seven or eight feet deep, but extended off indefinitely in all directions and had a fresh, slightly moving air, which suggested its membership in an extensive subterranean system. Its roof and floor were abundantly equipped with large stalactites and stalagmites, some of which met in columnar form. But important above all else was the vast deposit of shells and bones, which in places nearly choked the passage. Washed down from unknown jungles of Mesozoic tree-ferns and fungi, and forests of tertiary cycads, fan-palms, and primitive angiosperms, this osseous medley contained representatives of more Cretaceous, Eocene, and other animal species than the greatest paleontologists could have counted or classified in a year. Mollusks, crustacean armor, fishes, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and early mammals, great and small, known and unknown. No wonder Gedney ran back to the camp shouting, and no wonder everyone else dropped work and rushed headlong through the biting cold to where the tall derrick marked a new-found gateway to secrets of inner earth and vanished eons. When Lake had satisfied the first keen edge of his curiosity, he scribbled a message in his notebook, and had young Moulton run back to the camp to dispatch it by wireless. This was my first word of the discovery, and it told of the identification of early shells, 
bones of ganoids and placoderms, remnants of labyrinthodonts and thecodonts, great mosasaur skull fragments, dinosaur vertebrae and armor plates, pterodactyl teeth and wing bones, archaeopteryx debris, miocene shark's teeth, primitive bird skulls, and other bones of archaic mammals, such as paleotheres, exophodons, eohippi, eoriodons, and titanotheres. There was nothing as recent as a macedon, elephant, true camel, deer, or bovine animal. Hence, Lake concluded that the last deposits had occurred during the Oligocene age, and that the hollowed stratum had lain in its present dry, dead, and inaccessible state for at least thirty million years. On the other hand, the prevalence of very early life forms was singular in the highest degree. Though the limestone foundation was, on the evidence of such typical embedded fossils as ventriculites, positively and unmistakably Comanchian, and not a particle earlier, the free fragments in the hollow space included a surprising proportion of organisms hitherto considered as peculiar to far older periods, even rudimentary fishes, mollusks, and corals as remote as the Salunan or Ordovician. The inevitable inference was that in this part of the world there had been a remarkable and unique degree of continuity between the life of over three hundred million years ago and that of only thirty million years ago. How far this continuity had extended beyond the Oligocene age, when the cavern was closed, was of course past all speculation. In any event, the coming of the frightful ice to the Pleistocene some five hundred thousand years ago, a mere yesterday as compared with the age of this cavity, must have put an end to any of the primal forms which had locally managed to outlive their common terms. Lake was not content to let his first message stand, but had another bulletin written and dispatched across the snow to the camp before Moulton could get back. After that, Moulton stayed at the wireless in one of the places, transmitting to me, and— Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. To the Arkham for relaying to the outside world the frequent postscripts which Lake sent him by a succession of messengers. Those who followed the newspapers will remember the excitement created among men of science by that afternoon's reports, reports which have finally led, after all these years, to the organization of that very Starkweather Moor expedition which I am so anxious to dissuade from its purposes. I had better give the messages literally as Lake sent them, and as our base operator, McTighe, translated them from the pencil shorthand. Fowler makes discovery of highest importance in sandstone and limestone fragments from blasts. Several distinct triangular striated prints like those in Archean slate, proving that source survived from over six hundred million years ago to Comanchean times without more than moderate morphological changes and decrease in average size. Comanchean prints apparently more primitive or decadent, if anything, than older ones. Emphasize importance of discovery in press. Will mean to biology what Einstein has meant to mathematics and physics. Joins up with my previous work and amplifies conclusions. Appears to indicate, as I suspected, that Earth has seen whole cycle or cycles of organic life before known one that begins with archaeozoic cells was evolved and specialized not later than a thousand million years ago, when planet was young and recently uninhabitable for any life-forms or normal protoplasmic structure. Question arises when, where, and how development took place. Later, examining certain skeletal fragments of large land and marine saurians and primitive mammals, find singular local wounds or injuries to bony structure not attributable to any known predatory or carnivorous animal of any period, of two sorts, straight penetrant bores and apparently hacking incisions. One or two cases of cleanly severed bones. Not many specimens affected. I'm sending to camp for electric torches. Will extend search area underground by hacking away stalactites. Still later, have found peculiar soapstone fragments, about six inches across and an inch and a half thick, wholly unlike any visible local formation, greenish, but no evidences to place its period, has curious smoothness and regularity, shaped like five-pointed star, with tips broken off, and signs of other cleavage at inward angles and in center of surface. Small, smooth depression in center of unbroken surface. Arouses much curiosity as to source and weathering. Probably some freak of water action. Carroll, with magnifier, thinks he can make out additional markings of geologic significance. Groups of tiny dots in regular patterns. Dogs grow uneasy as we work, and seem to hate this soapstone. Must see if it has any peculiar odor. We'll report again when Mills gets back with light, and we start on underground area. 10.15 p.m. Important discovery. Orendorf and Watkins, working underground at 9.45 with light, 
found monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature, probably vegetable, unless overgrown specimen of unknown marine radiata. Tissue evidently preserved by mineral salts, tough as leather, but astonishing flexibility retained in places. Marks of broken-off parts at ends and around sides, six feet end-to-end, three and five-tenths feet central diameter, tapering to one foot at each end. Like a barrel with five bulging ridges in place of staves, lateral breakages, as of thinnish stalks, are at equator in middle of these ridges. In furrows between ridges are curious growths, combs or wings that fold up and spread out like fans. All greatly damaged but one, which gives almost seven-foot wing spread. Arrangement reminds one of certain monsters of primal myth, especially fabled elder things in Necronomicon. These wings seem to be membranous, stretch on framework of glandular tubing, apparent minute orifices in frame-tubing at wing-tips, ends of body shriveled, giving no clue to interior or what has been broken off there. Must dissect when we get back to camp. Can't decide whether vegetable or animal. Many features obviously of almost incredible primitiveness. Have set all hands cutting stalactites and looking for further specimens. Additional scarred bones found, but these must wait. Having trouble with dogs. They can't endure the new specimen, and would probably tear it to pieces if we didn't keep it at a distance from them. 11.30 p.m. Attention, Dyer, Pabody, Douglas. Matter of highest, I might say transcendent importance. Arkham must relay to Kingsport Head Station at once. Strange bellow-growth is the Archean thing that left prints in rocks. Mills, Boudreau, and Fowler discover cluster of thirteen more at underground point forty feet from aperture. Mixed with curiously rounded and configured soapstone fragments smaller than one previously found, star-shaped, but no marks of breakage except at some of the points. Of organic specimens, eight apparently perfect, with all appendages, have brought all to surface, leading off dogs to distance. They cannot stand the things. Give close attention to description, and repeat back for accuracy. Papers must get this right. Objects are eight feet long all over, six-foot, five-ridged barrel torso, three and five-tenths feet central diameter, one-foot end diameters, dark gray, flexible, and infinitely tough. Seven-foot membranous wings of same color, found folded, spread out of furrows between ridges. Wing framework tubular or glandular, of lighter gray, with orifices at wingtips. Spread wings have serrated edge. Around equator, one at central apex of each of the five vertical stave-like ridges are five systems of light gray flexible arms, or tentacles, found tightly folded to torso but expansible to maximum length of over three feet. Like arms of primitive crinoid. Single stalks three inches diameter branch after six inches into five substalks, each of which branches after eight inches into small tapering tentacles or tendrils. 
giving each stalk a total of twenty-five tentacles. At top of torso, blunt, bulbous neck of lighter gray, with gill-like suggestions, holds yellowish, five-pointed, starfish-shaped apparent head, covered with three-inch wiry cilia, of various prismatic colors. Head thick and puffy, about two feet point to point, with three-inch flexible yellowish tubes projecting from each point. Slit in exact center of top, probably breathing aperture. At end of each tube is spherical expansion, where yellowish membrane rolls back on handling to reveal glassy, red-irised globe, evidently an eye. Five slightly longer reddish tubes start from inner angles of starfish-shaped head, and end in sac-like swellings of same color, which, upon pressure, open to bell-shaped orifices two inches maximum diameter, and lined with sharp white tooth-like projections, probably mouths. All these tubes, cilia, and points of starfish head found folded tightly down, tubes and points clinging to bulbous neck and torso, flexibility surprising despite vast toughness. At bottom of torso, rough but dissimilarly functioning counterparts of head arrangements exist. Bulbous, light-gray pseudo-neck, without gill suggestions, holds greenish, five-pointed starfish arrangement. Tough, muscular arms four feet long and tapering from seven inches diameter at base to about two and five-tenths at point. To each point is attached small end of a greenish five-veined membranous triangle, eight inches long and six wide at farther end. This is the paddle, fin, and pseudo-foot, which has made prints in rocks from a thousand million to fifty or sixty million years old. From inner angles of starfish arrangement project two-foot reddish tubes, tapering from three inches diameter at base to one at tip orifices at tips, all these parts infinitely tough and leathery, but extremely flexible. Four-foot arms with paddles, undoubtedly used for locomotion of some sort, marine or otherwise, when moved, display suggestions of exaggerated muscularity. As found, all these projections tightly folded over pseudo-neck and end of torso, corresponding to projections at other end cannot yet assign positively to animal or vegetable kingdom, but odds now favor animal. Probably represents incredibly advanced evolution of radiata without loss of certain primitive features. Echinoderm resemblance is unmistakable, despite local contradictory evidences. Wing structure puzzles in view of probable marine habitat, but may have use in water navigation. Symmetry is curiously vegetable-like, suggesting vegetables' essential up-and-down structure rather than animals' fore-and-aft structure. Fabulously early date of evolution, proceeding even simplest archaea and protozoa hitherto unknown, baffles all conjecture as to origin. Complete specimens have such uncanny resemblance to certain creatures of primal myth that suggestion of ancient existence outside Antarctic becomes inevitable. Dyer and Pabody have read Necronomicon and seen Clark Ashton Smith's nightmare paintings based on text, 
and will understand when I speak of elder things supposed to have created all earth life as jest or mistake. Students have always thought conception formed from morbid imaginative treatment of very ancient tropical radiata, also like prehistoric folklore things Wildmarth has spoken of, Cthulhu cult appendages, etc. Vast field of study opened, deposits probably of late Cretaceous or early Eocene period, judging from associated specimens, massive stalagmites deposited above them. Hard work hewing out, but toughness prevented damage. State of preservation miraculous, evidently owing to limestone action. No more found so far, but we'll resume search later. Job now to get fourteen huge specimens to camp without dogs, which bark furiously and can't be trusted near them. With nine men, three left to guard the dogs, we ought to manage the three sledges fairly well the wind is bad, must establish plain communication with McMurdo Sound and begin shipping material. But I've got to dissect one of these things before we take any rest. Wish I had a real laboratory here. Dyer better kick himself for having tried to stop my westward trip. First the world's greatest mountains, and then this. If this last isn't the high spot of the expedition— I don't know what is. We're made scientifically. Congrats, Pabodi, on the drill that opened up the cave. Now, will Arkham please repeat description? The sensations of Pabodi and myself at receipt of this report were almost beyond description, nor were our companions much behind us in enthusiasm. McTighe, who had hastily translated a few high spots as they came from the droning receiving set, wrote out the entire message from his shorthand version as soon as Lake's operator signed off. All appreciated the epic-making significance of the discovery, and I sent Lake congratulations as soon as the Arkham's operator had repeated back the descriptive parts as requested, and my example was followed by Sherman from his station at the McMurdo Sound Supply Cache, as well as Captain Douglas of the Arkham. Later, as head of the expedition, I added some remarks to be relayed through the Arkham to the outside world. Of course, rest was an absurd thought amidst this excitement, and my only wish was to get to Lake's camp as quickly as I could. It disappointed me when he sent word that a rising mountain gale made early aerial travel impossible. But within an hour and a half interest again rose to banish disappointment. Lake, sending more messages, told of the completely successful transportation of the fourteen great specimens to the camp. It had been a hard pull, for the things were surprisingly heavy, but nine men had accomplished it very neatly. Now some of the party were hurriedly building a snow corral at a safe distance from the camp, to which the dogs could be brought for greater convenience in feeding. The specimens were laid out on the hard snow near the camp, save for one on which Lake was making crude attempts at dissection. This dissection seemed to be a greater task than he had expected, for despite the heat of a gasoline stove in the newly raised laboratory tent, the deceptively flexible tissues of the chosen specimen, a powerful and intact one, lost nothing of their more than leathery toughness. Lake was puzzled as to how he might make the requisite incisions 
without violence destructive enough to upset all the structural niceties he was looking for. He had, it is true, seven more perfect specimens. But these were too few to use up recklessly, unless the cave might later yield an unlimited supply. Accordingly he removed the specimen, and dragged in one which, though having remnants of the starfish arrangements at both ends, was badly crushed and partly disrupted along one of the great torso furrows. The results, quickly reported over the wireless, were baffling and provocative indeed. Nothing like delicacy or accuracy was possible with instruments hardly able to cut the anomalous tissue, but the little that was achieved left us all awed and bewildered. Existing biology would have to be wholly revised, for this thing was no product of any cell growth science knows about. There had been scarcely any mineral replacement, and despite an age of perhaps forty million years, the internal organs were wholly intact. The leathery, undeteriorative, and almost indestructible quality was an inherent attribute to the thing's form of organization, and pertained to some paleogean cycle of invertebrate evolution utterly beyond our powers of speculation. At first all that Lake found was dry, but as the heated tent produced its thawing effect, organic moisture of pungent and offensive odor was encountered toward the thing's uninjured side. It was not blood, but a thick, dark green fluid apparently answering the same purpose. By the time Lake reached this stage, all thirty-seven dogs had been brought to the still uncompleted corral near the camp, and even at that distance set up a savage barking and show of restlessness at the acrid, diffusive smell. Far from helping to place the strange entity, this provisional dissection merely deepened its mystery. All guesses about its external members had been correct, and on the evidence of these one could hardly hesitate to call the thing animal. But internal inspection brought up so many vegetable evidences that Lake was left hopelessly at sea. It had digestion and circulation, and eliminated waste matter through the reddish tubes of its starfish-shaped base. Cursorily, one would say that its respiration apparatus handled oxygen rather than carbon dioxide, and there were odd evidences of air storage chambers and methods of shifting respiration from the external orifice to at least two other fully developed breathing systems, gills and pores. Clearly, it was amphibian, and probably adapted to long airless hibernation periods as well. Vocal organs seemed present in connection with the main respiratory system, but they presented anomalies beyond immediate solution. Articulate speech, in the sense of syllable utterance, seemed barely conceivable, but musical piping notes covering a wide range were highly probable. The muscular system was almost prematurely developed. The nervous system was so complex and highly developed as to leave Lake aghast. Though excessively primitive and archaic in some respects, the thing had a set of ganglial centers and connectives arguing the very extremes of specialized development. Its five-lobed brain was surprisingly advanced, and there were signs of a sensory equipment, served in part through the wiry cilia of the head, involving factors alien to any other terrestrial organism. 
Probably it had more than five senses, so that its habits could not be predicted from any existing analogy. It must, Lake thought, have been a creature of keen sensitiveness and delicately differentiated functions in its primal world, much like the ants and bees of today. It reproduced like vegetable cryptograms, especially the pteridophyta, having spore cases at the tips of its wings and evidently developing from a thallus or prothallus. But to give it a name at this stage was mere folly. It looked like a radiant, but was clearly something more. It was partly vegetable, but had three-fourths of the essentials of animal structure. That it was marine in origin, its symmetrical contour and certain other attributes clearly indicated, yet one could not be exact as to the limit of its later adaptations. The wings, after all, held a persistent suggestion of the aerial, how it could have undergone its tremendously complex evolution on a new-born earth in time to leave prints on Archean rocks was so far beyond conception as to make Lake whimsically recall the primal myths about great old ones who filtered down from the stars and concocted earth life as a joke or mistake, and the wild tales of cosmic hill-things from outside told by a folklorist colleague in Miskatonic's English department. Naturally, he considered the possibility of the Precambrian prints having been made by a less evolved ancestor of the present specimens, but quickly rejected this too facile theory upon considering the advanced structural qualities of the older fossils. If anything, the later contours showed decadence rather than higher evolution. The size of the pseudo-feet had decreased, and the whole morphology seemed coarsened and simplified. Moreover, the nerves and organs just examined held singular suggestions of retrogression from forms still more complex. Atrophied and vestigial parts were surprisingly prevalent. Altogether, little could be said to have been solved, and Lake fell back on mythology for a provisional name, jocosely dubbing his finds the Elder Ones. At about 2.30 a.m., Having decided to postpone further work and get a little rest, he covered the dissected organism with a tarpaulin, emerged from the laboratory tent, and studied the intact specimens with renewed interest. The ceaseless Antarctic sun had begun to limber up their tissues a trifle, so that the head points and tubes of two or three showed signs of unfolding. But Lake did not believe there was any danger of immediate decomposition in the almost sub-zero air. He did, however, move all the undissected specimens close together, and throw a spare tent over them, in order to keep off the direct solar rays. That would also help to keep their possible scent away from the dogs, whose hostile unrest was really becoming a problem. Even at their substantial distance and beyond the higher and higher snow-walls which an increased quota of the men were hastening to raise around their quarters, he had to weight down the corners of the tent-cloth with heavy blocks of snow to hold it in place amidst the rising gale, for the tightened mountains seemed about to deliver some gravely severe blasts. Early apprehensions about sudden Antarctic winds were revived, and under Atwood supervision, Precautions were taken to bank the tents, new dog corral, and crude aeroplane shelter with snow on the mountainward side. 
these latter shelters, begun with hard snow-blocks during odd moments, were by no means as high as they should have been, and Lake finally detached all hands from other tasks to work on them. It was after four, when Lake at last prepared to sign off, and advised us all to share the rest period his outfit would take when the shelter walls were a little higher. He held some friendly chat with Pabodi over the ether, and repeated his praise of the really marvellous drills that had helped him make his discovery. Atwood also sent greetings and praises. I gave Lake a warm word of congratulations, owning up that he was right about the western trip, and we all agreed to get in touch by wireless at ten in the morning. If the gale was then over, Lake would send a plane for the party at my base. Just before retiring, I dispatched a final message to the Arkham, with instructions about toning down the day's news for the outside world, since the full details seemed radical enough to rouse a wave of incredulity until further substantiated. CHAPTER Three. None of us, I imagine, slept very heavily or continuously that morning. Both the excitement of Lake's discovery and the mounting fury of the wind were against such a thing. So savage was the blast, even where we were, that we could not help wondering how much worse it was at Lake's camp, directly under the vast unknown peaks that bred and delivered it. McTighe was awake at ten o'clock, and tried to get Lake on the wireless, as agreed. But some electrical condition in the disturbed air to the westward seemed to prevent communication. We did, however, get the Arkham and Douglas told me that he had likewise been vainly trying to reach Lake. He had not known about the wind, for very little was blowing at McMurdo Sound, despite its persistent rage where we were. Throughout the day we all listened anxiously and tried to get Lake at intervals, but invariably without results. About noon a positive frenzy of wind stampeded out of the west, causing us to fear for the safety of our camp, but it eventually died down, with only a moderate relapse at 2 p.m. After three o'clock it was very quiet, and we redoubled our efforts to get Lake. Reflecting that he had four planes, each provided with an excellent short-wave outfit, we could not imagine any ordinary incident capable of crippling all his wireless equipment at once. Nevertheless, the stony silence continued and when we thought of the delirious force the wind must have had in his locality, we could not help making the more direful conjectures. By six o'clock our fears had become intense and definite, and after a wireless consultation with Douglas and Thorfinson, I resolved to take steps toward investigation. The fifth aeroplane, which we had left at the McMurdo Sound supply cache with Sherman and two sailors, was in good shape and ready for instant use, and it seemed that the very emergency for which it had been saved was now upon us. I got Sherman by wireless and ordered him to join me with the plane and the two sailors at the southern base as quickly as possible, air conditions being apparently highly favorable. We then talked over the personnel of the coming investigation party and decided that we would include all hands, together with the sledge and dogs which I had kept with me. Even so great a load would not be too much for one of the huge planes built to our special orders for heavy machinery transportation. 
At intervals I still tried to reach Lake with the wireless, but all to no purpose. Sherman, with the sailors Gunnerson and Larson, took off at 7.30, and reported a quiet flight from several points on the wing. They arrived at our base at midnight, and all hands at once discussed the next move. It was risky business sailing over the Antarctic in a single aeroplane without any line of bases, but no one drew back from what seemed like the plainest necessity. We turned in at two o'clock for a brief rest after some preliminary loading of the plane, but were up again in four hours to finish the loading and packing. At 7.15 a.m., January 25th, we started flying northwestward under McTighe's pilotage with ten men, seven dogs, a sledge, a fuel and food supply, and other items, including the plane's wireless outfit. The atmosphere was clear, fairly quiet, and relatively mild in temperature, and we anticipated very little trouble in reaching the latitude and longitude designated by Lake as the site of his camp. Our apprehensions were what we might find, or fail to find, at the end of our journey, for silence continued to answer all calls dispatched to the camp. Every incident of that four-and-a-half-hour flight is burned into my recollection, because of its crucial position in my life. It marked my loss, at the age of fifty-four, of all that peace and balance which the normal mind possesses through its accustomed conception of external nature and nature's laws. Thenceforward, the ten of us, but the student Danforth and myself above all others, were to face a hideously amplified world of lurking horrors, which nothing can erase from our emotions, and which we would refrain from sharing with mankind in general, if we could. The newspapers have printed the bulletins we sent for the moving plane, telling of our non-stop course, our two battles with treacherous upper-air gales, our glimpse of the broken surface where Lake had sunk his mid-journey shaft three days before, and our sight of a group of those strange fluffy snow-cylinders noted by Amundsen and Bird as rolling in the wind across the endless leagues of frozen plateau. There came a point, though, when our sensations could not be conveyed in any words the press would understand, and a latter point when we had to adopt an actual rule of strict censorship. The sailor Larson was the first to spy the jagged line of witch-like cones and pinnacles ahead, and his shouts sent everyone to the windows of the great cabined plain. Despite our speed, they were very slow in gaining prominence, Hence we knew that they must be infinitely far off, and visible only because of their abnormal height. Little by little, however, they rose grimly into the western sky, allowing us to distinguish various bare, bleak, blackish summits, and to catch the curious sense of fantasy which they inspired, as seen in the reddish Antarctic light against the provocative background of iridescent ice-dust clouds. In the whole spectacle there was a persistent, pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation. It was as if these stark, nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dream and complex gulfs of remote time, space, and ultra-dimensionality. 
I could not help feeling that they were evil things, mountains of madness, whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss. That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial, and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and eon-long death of this of this untrodden and unfathomed austral world. It was young Danforth who drew our notice to the curious regularities of the higher mountain skyline, regularities like clinging fragments of perfect cubes, which Lake had mentioned in his messages, and which indeed justified his comparison with the dreamlike suggestions of primordial temple ruins on cloudy Asian mountain tops so subtly and strangely painted by Rurich. There was indeed something hauntingly Rurich-like about this whole unearthly continent of mountainous mystery. I had felt it in October when we first caught sight of Victoria Land, and I felt it afresh now. I felt, too, another wave of uneasy consciousness of Archean mythical resemblances, of how disturbingly this lethal realm corresponded to the evilly famed Plateau of Ling in the primal writings. Mythologists had placed Ling in Central Asia, but the racial memory of man, or of his predecessors, is long, and it may well be that certain tales have come down from lands and mountains and temples of horror earlier than Asia, and earlier than any human world we know. A few daring mystics have hinted at a pre-Pleistocene origin of the fragmentary Nocotic manuscripts, and have suggested that the devotees of Tsathogwa were as alien to mankind as to Sogwa itself. Lang, wherever in space or time it may brood, was not a region I would care to be in, or near, nor did I relish the proximity of a world that had ever bred such ambiguous and archean monstrosities as those Lake had just mentioned. At the moment, I felt sorry that I had ever read the abhorred Necronomicon, or talked so much with that unpleasantly erudite folklorist Wilmarth at the university. This mood undoubtedly served to aggravate my reaction to the bizarre mirage which burst upon us from the increasingly opalescent zenith as we drew near the mountains and began to make out the cumulative undulations of the foothills. I had seen dozens of polar mirages during the preceding weeks, some of them quite as uncanny and fantastically vivid as the present example, but this one had a wholly novel and obscure quality of menacing symbolism, and I shuddered as the seething labyrinth of fabulous walls and towers and minarets loomed out of the troubled ice vapors above our heads. The effect was that of a cyclopean city of no architecture known to man or to human imagination, with vast aggregations of night-black masonry embodying monstrous perversions of geometrical laws. There were truncated cones, sometimes terraced or fluted, surmounted by tall cylindrical shafts, here and there bulbously enlarged, and often capped with tiers of thinnish, scalloped discs and strange beetling table-like constructions, suggesting piles of multitudinous rectangular slabs, or circular plates, or five-pointed stars, with each one overlapping the one beneath. 
There were composite cones and pyramids, either alone or surmounting cylinders or cubes, or flatter truncated cones and pyramids, and occasionally needle-like spires in curious clusters of five. All of these febrile structures seemed knit together by tubular bridges, crossing from one to the other at various dizzying heights, and the implied scale of the whole was terrifying and oppressive in its sheer gigantism. The general type of mirage was not unlike some of the wilder forms observed and drawn by the Arctic whaler Scoresby in 1820, but at this time and place, with those dark, unknown mountain peaks soaring stupendously ahead, that anomalous elder world discovery in our minds, and the pall of probable disaster enveloping the greater part of our expedition, we all seemed to find in it a taint of latent malignity and infinitely evil portent. I was glad when the mirage began to break up, though in the process the various nightmare turrets and cones assumed distorted, temporary forms of even vaster hideousness. As the whole illusion dissolved to churning opalescence, we began to look earthward again, and saw that our journey's end was not far off. The unknown mountains ahead rose dizzily up like a fearsome rampart of giants, their curious regularities showing with startling clearness even without a field-glass. We were over the lowest foothills now, and could see amidst the snow, ice, and bare patches of their main plateau a couple of darkish spots which we took to be Lake's camp at Boring. The higher foothills shot up between five and six miles away, forming a range almost distinct from the terrifying line of more than Himalayan peaks beyond them. At length, Ropes, the student who had relieved McTigue at the controls, began to head downward toward the left-hand dark spot whose size marked it as the camp. As he did so, McTigue sent out the last uncensored wireless message the world was to receive from our expedition. Everyone, of course, has read the brief and unsatisfying bulletins of the rest of our Antarctic sojourn. Some hours after our landing we sent a guarded report of the tragedy we found, and reluctantly announced the wiping out of the whole lake party by the frightful wind of the preceding day, and of the night before that. Eleven known dead, young Gedney missing. People pardoned our hazy lack of details through realization of the shock the sad event must have caused us, and believed us when we explained that the mangling action of the wind had rendered all eleven bodies unsuitable for transportation outside. Indeed, I flatter myself that, even in the midst of our distress, utter bewilderment, and soul-clutching horror, we scarcely went beyond the truth in any specific instance. The tremendous significance lies in what we dared not tell, what I would not tell now but for the need of warning others off from nameless terrors. It is a fact that the wind had brought dreadful havoc. Whether all could have lived through it, even without the other thing, is gravely open to doubt. The storm, with its fury of madly driven ice particles, must have been beyond anything our expedition had encountered before. One aeroplane shelter wall, it seems, had been left in a far too flimsy and inadequate state, was nearly pulverized, and the derrick at the distant boring was entirely shaken to pieces. 
the exposed metal of the grounded planes and the drilling machinery was bruised into a high polish, and two of the small tents were flattened despite their snow-banking. Wooden surfaces left out in the blast were pitted and denuded of paint, and all signs of tracks in the snow were completely obliterated. It is also true that we found none of the Archean biological objects in a condition to take outside as a whole. We did gather some minerals from a vast tumbled pile, including several of the greenish soapstone fragments, whose odd five-pointed roundings and faint patterns of group dots caused so many doubtful comparisons, and some fossil bones, among which were the most typical of the curiously injured specimens. None of the dogs survived, their hurriedly built snow enclosure near the camp being almost wholly destroyed. The wind may have done that, though the greater breakage on the side next to the camp, which was not the windward one, suggests an outward leap or break of the frantic beasts themselves. All three sledges were gone, and we have tried to explain that the wind may have blown them off into the unknown. The drill and ice-melting machinery at the boring were too badly damaged to warrant salvage, so we used them to choke up that subtly disturbing gateway to the past which Lake had blasted. We likewise left at the camp the two most shaken up of the plains. Since our surviving party had only four real pilots, Sherman, Danforth, McTighe, and Ropes, in all, with Danforth in a poor nervous shape to navigate. We brought back all the books, scientific equipment, and other incidentals we could find, though much was rather unaccountably blown away. Spare tents and furs were either missing or badly out of condition. It was approximately 4 p.m., after wide plain cruising had forced us to give Gedney up for lost, that we sent our guarded message to the Arkham for relaying. And I think we did well to keep it as calm and non-committal as we succeeded in doing. The most we said about agitation concerned our dogs, whose frantic uneasiness near the biological specimens was to be expected from poor Lake's accounts. We did not mention, I think, their display of the same uneasiness when sniffing around the queer greenish soapstones and certain other objects in the disordered region objects including scientific instruments, aeroplanes, and machinery, both at the camp and at the boring, whose parts have been loosened, moved, or otherwise tampered with by winds that must have harbored singular curiosity and investigativeness. About the fourteen biological specimens we were pardonably indefinite. We said that the only ones we discovered were damaged, but that enough was left of them to prove Lake's description wholly and impressively accurate. It was hard work keeping our personal emotions out of this matter, and we did not mention numbers or say exactly how we had found those which we did find. We had by that time agreed not to transmit anything suggesting madness on the part of Lake's men, and it surely looked like madness to find six imperfect monstrosities carefully buried upright in nine-foot snow-graves under five-pointed mounds punched over with groups of dots in patterns exactly those on the queer greenish soapstones dug up from Mesozoic or tertiary times. 
the eight perfect specimens mentioned by Lake seemed to have been completely blown away. We were careful, too, about the public's general peace of mind. Hence, Danforth and I said little about that frightful trip over the mountains the next day. It was the fact that only a radically lightened plane could possibly cross a range of such height, which mercifully limited that scouting tour to the two of us. On our return at 1 a.m., Danforth was close to hysterics, but kept an admirably stiff upper lip. It took no persuasion to make him promise not to show our sketches and the other things we brought away in our pockets, not to say anything more to the others than what we had agreed to relay outside, and to hide our camera films for private development later on. So that part of my present story will be as new to Pabodi, McTighe, Ropes, Sherman, and the rest, as it will be to the world in general. Indeed, Danforth is closer mouth than I, for he saw, or thinks he saw, one thing he will not tell even me. As all know, our report included a tale of a hard ascent, a confirmation of Lake's opinion that the great peaks are of Archean slate and other very primal crumpled strata unchanged since at least middle Comanchean times, a conventional comment on the regularity of the clinging cube and rampart formations, a decision that cave mouths indicate dissolved calcareous veins, a conjecture that certain slopes and passes would permit of the scaling and crossing of the entire range by seasoned mountaineers, and a remark that the mysterious other side holds a lofty and immense super-plateau, as ancient and unchanging as the mountains themselves, twenty thousand feet in elevation, with grotesque rock formations protruding through a thin glacial layer, and with low gradual foothills between the general plateau surface and the sheer precipices of the highest peaks. This body of data is in every respect true, so far as it goes, and it completely satisfied the men at the camp. We laid our absence of sixteen hours a longer time than our announced flying, landing, reconnoitering, and rock-collecting program called for, to a long, mythical spell of adverse wind conditions, and told truly of our landing on the farther foothills. Fortunately, our tale sounded realistic and prosaic enough not to tempt any of the others into emulating our flight. Had any tried to do that, I would have used every ounce of my persuasion to stop them and I do not know what Danforth would have done. While we were gone, Pabodi, Sherman, Ropes, McTighe, and Williamson had worked like beavers over Lake's two best planes, fitting them again for use, despite the altogether unaccountable juggling of their operative mechanism. We decided to load all the planes the next morning, and start back for our old base as soon as possible. Even though indirect, that was the safest way to work toward McMurdo Sound, for a straight-line flight across the most utterly unknown stretches of the eon-dead continent would involve many additional hazards. Further exploration was hardly feasible in view of our tragic decimation and the ruin of our drilling machinery. The doubts and horrors around us, which we did not reveal, made us wish only to escape from this austral world of desolation and brooding madness as swiftly as we could. 
As the public knows, our return to the world was accomplished without further disasters. All planes reached the old base on the evening of the next day, January 27th, after a swift, non-stop flight. And on the 28th we made McMurdo Sound in two laps, the one pause being very brief, and occasioned by a faulty rudder in the furious wind over the ice shelf after we had cleared the great plateau. In five days more the Arkham and Miskatonic, with all hands and equipment on board, were shaking clear of the thickening field ice and working up Ross Sea, with the mocking mountains of Victoria land looming westward against a troubled Antarctic sky, and twisting the wind's wails into the wide-ranged musical piping which chilled my soul to the quick. Less than a fortnight later we left the last hint of polar land behind us, and thanked heaven that we were clear of a haunted, accursed realm where life and death, space and time, have made black and blasphemous alliances in the unknown epics since matter first writhed and swam on the planet's scarce cooled crust. Since our return we have all constantly worked to discourage Antarctic exploration, and have kept certain doubts and guesses to ourselves with splendid unity and faithfulness. Even young Danforth, with his nervous breakdown, has not flinched or babbled to his doctors. Indeed, as I have said, there is one thing he thinks he alone saw which he will not tell even me, though I think it would help his psychological state if he would consent to do so. It might explain and relieve much, though perhaps the thing was no more than the delusive aftermath of an earlier shock. That is the impression I gather after those rare, irresponsible moments when he whispers disjointed things to me, things which he repudiates vehemently as soon as he gets a grip on himself again. It will be hard work deterring others from the great white south, and some of our efforts may directly harm our cause by drawing inquiring notice. We might have known from the first that human curiosity is undying, and that the results we announced would be enough to spur others ahead on the same age-long pursuit of the unknown. Lake's reports and those biological monstrosities had aroused naturalists and paleontologists to the highest pitch, though we were sensible enough not to show the detached parts we had taken from the actual buried specimens, or our photographs of those specimens as they were found. We also refrained from showing the more puzzling of the scarred bones and greeny soapstones, while Danforth and I have closely guarded the pictures we took or drew on the super-plateau across the range, and the crumpled things we smoothed, studied in terror, and brought away in our pockets. But now the Starkweather Moor party is organizing, and with a thoroughness far beyond anything our outfit attempted. If not dissuaded, they will get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic, and melt and bore till they bring up that which we know may end the world. So I must break through all reticences at last, even about that ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness.
Thank you, H.P. And thank you, Bob. As I said, no fussing about tonight. Scoot. Go on home. It's warm out there, so you will not need your mucklucks, your anoraks, or your parkas. Pile them by the door for next week's show, where things get even colder. Scoot now. And don't forget, when you get home, have warm and pleasant dreams. Hmm? This Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>